This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Downey. Our guest this week is former USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack, President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry provides individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Secretary Tom Vilsack next. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. The National Crop Insurance Services provide individualized protection on more than 290 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Just over a year ago, former USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack was named President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. Representing farmers, cooperatives, and the dairy industry, the Council's goal is to raise global sales from 15 to 20 percent of total dairy production. Secretary Tom Vilsack says the U.S. dairy industry is poised to capture greater global market share, but needs to maintain and grow global market access and that starts close to home. Mexico is our number one market. Nearly a third of everything we produce that is exported currently goes into the Mexican market uh, in the form of cheese, ingredients, powder, and so forth. The Canadian market, very, very uh, different, uh, the Canadians would say, but we're your number two market. Well, the reality is the product that we export uh, from U.S. into Canada basically gets exported right back at us in a value-added proposition. So it's not the true uh, traditional export uh, opportunity. Uh, the Canadian market's been closed for a long time. They frequently devise schemes to essentially protect their supply management system up there. Uh, with the great demand that we currently see in butter and butter fat uh, throughout the world, it's created uh, a real challenge for the Canadians. And rather than trying to solve it domestically within their supply management system, They've created a new classification, uh, underpriced uh, the the, uh, the value of powder, uh, making it difficult for Americans to uh, uh, to basically provide ultra-filtered milk into that market as they once did. And now the Canadians are taking the market surplus that they have, the powder surplus they have, and putting it on a market below world prices, which is really uh, causing a lot of stress in the powder market. So uh, our hope is uh, that as we renegotiate and modernize NAFTA, uh, that one of the things that comes out of that renegotiation and modernization is a, an elimination of Class 7 and a reduction of tariffs on the Canadian side so that we can have a matching opportunity, if you will, through NAFTA that we have uh, in, in the Mexican market today. With a focus on Mexico, have you seen a change in their attitude that might have been influenced by the rhetoric that has come from the administration about the NAFTA renegotiation? Well, uh, initially, uh, a year ago or so, when the president took office and made some comments about NAFTA, uh, there was uh, angst and concern, and uh, several of us uh, who were associated with uh, uh, the industry, Michael Dykes, IDFEA, the International Dairy uh, Production Association, and uh, Jim Mulhern from National Milk, we, we went down and essentially talked to our Mexican counterparts and reassured them that our relationship is not a transactional relationship. It's more of a partnership. We've been trying to work with con- uh, producers and processors down in Mexico to build demand 
which helps Mexican producers and also helps us. And we've seen that demand build uh, significantly. In the last decade, Mexican production has increased by 57%, but that's been more than uh, taken up by the consumption uh, levels that have we've seen increases, which has created this incredible market opportunity for us as well. And we anticipate and expect uh, the cheese sales uh, and powder sales are going to continue to, to grow in that Mexican market. Uh, and that's true uh, throughout the world. I mean, th- th- there's a real opportunity here uh, over the course of the next five years of increasing, and we are focusing at U.S. DEC on trying to increase our percentage from 15% of production to 20% of production, and that would mean several billion additional dollars uh, uh, to the bottom line of producers and processors in this country. When I talked to Tom Slate with the U.S. Grains Council, he said shortly after the discussion began about renegotiating NAFTA that many of our existing trading partners, those who counted on us for feed grain supplies, say that they now no longer see the U.S. as the reliable supplier as they once did. Is that a similar statement for dairy, or is it a better relationship now? Well, I think we may have a slightly better relationship, but I think there's, as I said, angst and concern. And so there was an effort initially uh, to take a look at additional suppliers. But uh, our percentage of of volume, if you will, of of exports has actually gone up uh, in the last couple of months. Uh, Having said that, uh, the big concern for the dairy industry is not so much um, uh, the volume, but it, it is the opportunity for the EU to come in and negotiate with the Mexicans in a free trade agreement protections against certain types of cheeses and the use of the names of certain types of cheeses. Geographic indications um, is, a, is a big issue, and the Europeans understand that they're never going to be able to compete with the U.S. dairy industry in terms of productivity, and so what they're trying to do is to create niches, monopolies, if you will, on certain cheeses uh, that only they can sell. Uh, the result, of course, will be that they can mark those prices up a bit uh, and they can basically get the high-value opportunity that cheese represents. Uh, we've been fighting that, and we've been encouraging our Mexican counterparts to stand firm, uh, to recognize that if you give in to the EU on these issues just to gain some market access in the European market, you're going to do damage to your dairy industry uh, in your country. Uh, and so far, they've held strong. Uh, but that's the risk with NAFTA. That's the risk with the rhetoric um, that people begin to have conversations and relationships with others. When we pulled out a TPP, uh, the EU immediately went to Mexico and Japan. They conclu- concluded their free trade agreement with Japan, and that included some protections for GIs. Um, and, and so that market's not as open as it uh, as it once was, uh, and certainly not as open as it would have been uh, with TPP. Let's look into the Tom Vilsack crystal ball for just a second. What happens if this administration starts the process of withdrawing from NAFTA, if the trade barriers go back up at the borders? How does it affect U.S. agriculture, and specifically now with your uh, with your job description with the dairy industry, how does it affect U.S. dairy? Oh, I tell you, that that is the worst, uh, the worst outcome of all uh, for the dairy industry and for agriculture generally. Uh, I mean, the reality is, we want the negotiators to stay at the, at the table long enough to get something done. And, you know, it's not just the dairy issues. There are other big issues that they have to resolve. And, but, but they're not intractable. They're not unsolvable. Uh, with a little bit of creativity and ingenuity, they can get this done. But, Jeff, if, if the administration were to trigger that, um, it would immediately increase uh, over the next six months or so. It would immediately increase tariffs. Uh, that would make us far, far less competitive in that Mexican market than we currently are. We we can dominate that market, and we should dominate it. Um, but if tariffs go up to a most uh, favored nation uh, status, 
then we're sort of on par uh, with some of our competitors. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the Mexicans look for alternative opportunities. They enter into a free trade agreement with the EU. It, it may uh, alter cheese sales down there. Um, and, and it sends a message to the world, sends a message to the world um, that, that now the United States is looking at things more unilaterally. It's, it's looking inward, not outward. At a time when, again, 95% of the world's consumers live outside the U.S., and over time, that percentage is going to grow to 97% as Asian populations grow at a faster rate than our population. So, you know, it's just we, we can't do this. Um, and I think agriculture has been very firm in suggesting to the administration that that would be a big mistake. You know, Jeff, one, people, one thing people don't understand is the size of the food and agriculture industry generally. Uh, I think they have a tendency to think it's just farmers, but it's not just farmers. It's the people in those processing facilities, those packaging facilities, uh, those transportation systems that get the product to and from uh, various markets. All told, uh, 43 million jobs are impacted and affected by the food and agriculture industry. That's 28% of all of America's employment. It's nearly 20% of our entire economy. So I think you have to be very careful uh, when you're when you're dealing with trade agreements, when you're dealing with relationships between partners and between countries that we've been close to and that we've benefited from, uh, I think it's really, really important for agriculture that they stay at the table and get this done. If you watch the headlines over the past few days, it looks like the 11 remaining members that are working toward the TPP have a deal and will sign that in early March. Canada says the TPP deal uh, that has been signed leaves them zero room for concessions in NAFTA. How do you see these two headlines? <laughs> well, obviously, uh, we're in a negotiation, and so uh, conceivably this is a negotiation ploy. Uh, but what's changing uh, for the Canadians, uh, Jeff, is a recognition by their consumers uh, that their supply management system is uh, basically costing consumers in Canada a substantial amount of money. They pay, uh, I think, nearly double for some of the dairy products uh in Canada than you would pay in the United States. It's one of the reasons why Canadians literally drive across the border to buy milk. Uh, so I think as, as Canadian consumers become more and more aware that this supply management system is costing them more money at the grocery store, the pressure continues to build for change uh, in Canada. Uh, and then when you add to it uh, the need for additional market opportunities in order for Canada to be able to say consistently that they're for free and fair trade, um, it, it creates, I think, momentum uh, for change. And I think the world is is very much aligned against the Canadian uh, dairy system in terms of what they've done recently with Class 7. Uh, and I think despite what they may say about uh, TPP, uh, I think there are ways in which they can, uh, they can, they can change their system. We're not suggesting they need to scrap it, uh, but they, they just need to make it more transparent, and they need to get rid of Class 7, and they need to lower the tariffs. So I spoke with Canadian Ag and Food Minister McCauley early in January, and he said, first of all, we didn't ask for this renegotiation of NAFTA. And second of all, we like our dairy policy very much. Thank you. So with that, <laughs> he sees very little reason for them to make any change. But yet if I've listened to the dairy industry and even in your statements now, something's got to give. Something does have to give, and I think if you were to – visit with him today, he may say uh, pretty much the same thing, but I think if you listen very carefully, you would probably hear that that he recognizes, the Trudeau government recognizes, uh, I believe they should recognize anyway, that there is a growing sentiment uh, in the country 
uh, among consumers suggesting that, you know, this just isn't right. Uh, we shouldn't be paying significantly more for milk and for dairy products than anybody in the United States is paying. Why is that so? Well, it's because you've got a system that basically compels higher prices. And um, that's just not what, what you want. You want consumers to have choice. You want consumers to be um, have competition for their consuming dollar, uh, and, and we can provide that. Uh, and, and frankly, it also uh, creates an imbalance as Canadian companies basically prosper with this system. They take the resources and they come down to the United States and start buying up assets down here. Um, and so th- there's you know a deepening concern uh, in, in the U.S. dairy industry about the inequity that this system has created, both in terms of, of our ability to sell into that Canadian market and the capacity of Canadians to come into the U.S. and buy assets. Also in headlines over the past few days, we've seen our friends in New Zealand suggest that the Canadian dairy policy is hurting their dairy farmers as well. So if not in TPP and not in NAFTA, is there any other recourse if our neighbors to the north refuse to change? Well, I suppose the the ultimate recourse would be to consider uh, a challenge uh, in WTO. Uh, you know that the, the reality of that is that it takes an incredibly long time, um, and and frankly, the best route would be for the negotiations uh, that are currently underway and that will take place in Montreal uh, over the course of the next several days. Uh, that it's the best opportunity is for that system to basically solve the problem that the Canadians have created for all of us. Uh, the New Zealand uh, dairy producers are absolutely uh, being impacted and affected, as are uh, the the producers in, in uh, the EU. Uh, the reality is when you sell product substantially below market price, you drive the market down, and that impacts and affects every single producer uh, that's in that business. As Secretary of Agriculture, yours was the charge to implement the 2014 Farm Bill. So with that, now this, as we are looking to potentially a 2018 Farm Bill, what needs to change? Well, uh, I think there are probably a couple of things, but let's start with the reality that we face. You know, I hope there is a 2018 Farm Bill, but if history is any lesson for us, it may take a little bit longer than, uh, than we have left in this year. Uh, especially given the, the, the election and given the, 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 the sort of the constrained uh, calendar. The second challenge, I think, for, particularly for the drafters of the Farm Bill, is how much resource they have to work with. Uh, I mean, the reality is when you pass a very large tax cut, uh, as Congress has done, and there is an acknowledgement that it's going to increase the deficit over time, uh, there's now going to be genuine concern about whether or not we need to constrain government spending. Uh, when you do that, uh, you basically make it very difficult to address any of the problems that have cropped up that need to be resolved in the Farm Bill. Uh, I think if you talk to cotton growers, they're going to tell you that they need help on the uh, oilseed being included in the programs. If you talk to dairy producers, they're going to tell you that the margin protection program just doesn't work as well as they anticipated, and there needs to be adjustments. All, all of that, all those changes cost money. Uh, if you talk to the folks in, in conservation, in the conservation world, they'll tell you that uh, the uh, the conservation resources are, are needed and that there needs to be additional investment. If you talk to rural development people, they'll tell you we need to expand broadband. Um, if you talk to uh, the forest folks, they'll tell you they need additional resources uh, to make sure our forests are well-maintained. So the, the bottom line is that crafting a farm bill uh, is going to be difficult with constrained resources uh, if you are to meet the problems that people have identified with the current farm bill. Um, and that doesn't even get into whether or not ARC and PLC, the programs uh, 
helping uh, the commodity producers are, are working the way they should, and it doesn't talk about what we're supposed to be doing for the livestock industry in terms of disaster assistance and help. So uh, a lot of challenges uh, that are faced. Now, this could be, the, the burden could be lifted a little bit if uh, Congress passes the emergency uh, bill, uh, the disaster bill that, uh, that they're considering, because in that disaster bill there is a, I, th- I understand there's a fix for the cotton folks, and potentially some support for the dairy folks. If that's true, then that makes it a little bit easier to get that farm bill through the process. So what happens to dairy farmers? And what happens to the dairy industry if this Congress kicks the can and holds off in writing a new farm bill and we're left with the dairy policy as we have right now in this economic climate? Well, I think in the short term, it's going to put a lot of stress on on some of the producers. Um, And as has been the case in, in times before when there's been stress, it, it ultimately results in consolidation and, and people making the decision to leave the industry. Uh, and so we'd have further further constriction, if you will. Um, and that's unfortunate because one of the great things about the dairy industry that I like uh, is that, especially with the cooperative model, that you know the smaller producer has a seat at the table with the larger producer, and they, they share a common set of values and a common uh, set of goals. Uh, that brings unity, if you will, within the dairy industry, uh, which I, I really think is important for agriculture. It's important for dairy and for agriculture to speak with a single voice about things. Um, so I think if you if you put stress, you're going to put stress on those mid-sized to smaller-sized operators, and, and that's just going to make it harder uh, for them to survive, harder for their communities that are relying on them being business to survive. Um, and so it's important that Congress addresses this issue. Immigration policy is known to be broken in the U.S., and there's great need for immigration reform, and the dairy industry is tied to this immigration issue. What happens if this gets delayed further? Well, it just creates more and more difficulty for producers to be able to get the workforce to be able to produce the milk. And um, again, remember the jobs that are connected uh, to the dairy industry, to agriculture in general. If you don't fix the immigration system, eventually you jeopardize our ability to continue to grow and raise as much as we grow and raise in this country, and, and that over time will impact export markets and import uh, the food security of the country. I mean, it's that serious. Now, you know, the reality is that uh, Representative Goodlatte in, in, uh, in the House has proposed a bill. He got it through committee, uh, but it wasn't an easy uh, task. Uh, I, think it, I think it passed by one vote. Very contentious issue. Uh, it goes to the House uh, to the entire House. Hopefully they pass that. Uh, there are lots of problems with that bill. Uh, I think everybody would probably acknowledge and admit that there are probably some problems, some, some, some red lines that are, that are probably not, not, uh, not good, good policy. Uh, it goes to the Senate. There it has to be, if you will, perfected so that we actually get an immigration fix. Um, and, and honestly, Jeff, you, you mentioned in your question, you said everybody understands that we have an immigration policy that is broken, a system that's broken. You know, if everybody understands that, and I think you're right, everybody does understand it, you would think that there would be enough uh, willingness on the part of folks in Congress to get it fixed um, and to do it in a way that, that, that creates opportunity for people to come into the country and work hard and play by the rules and raise their families and, and be part of this, uh, the future of this country, as has been the case with uh, immigrant populations before. Uh, but this current system uh, is creating a lot of difficulty in terms of workforce, not just in agriculture, but across the board. And it really is time for Congress to get serious about this. I want to jump to politics for a minute, if you don't mind. <laughs> well, 
Well, it kind of depends on what you're going to ask. Uh, Mr. Secretary, I was in Nashville and I listened to the president as he spoke to the members of the Farm Bureau. He said, we want a farm bill. We want a farm bill with crop insurance. We want fair trade and we want less regulation. Now, I recall a secretary of agriculture named Tom Vilsack who said the same things. But somehow that message was captured and it helped the GOP to gain the White House and leadership in the House and the Senate. So my question for you now is what did the Democratic Party or what should the Democratic Party have learned through this last election? And what do they need to do now to gain the confidence of the real voter? Well, I think first and foremost, they got to show up. Uh, I think Democratic candidates, regardless of what they're running for, need to spend time in small towns and in rural areas and not just to drive by, uh, but literally spend time. Uh, and with that time, they need to listen. And they need to listen carefully about the hopes and aspirations and the concerns and frustrations of those who have lived in small towns, who have watched their, their towns, uh, basically uh, the economy of their towns suffer, and they've watched their kids and grandkids leave and not come back. They need to understand the emotional pain that's associated with that. And then secondly, they need to they need to be able to, to learn how to talk uh, with people from rural places. You know, I, I think a tendency uh, uh, if folks in my party is to is to think they're talking to folks, but really they're talking down to them. Uh, they need to figure out how to talk up to them. Uh, and by doing that, uh, you do that by recognizing the incredible contribution that people in those small towns and on those farms and ranches make to the entire country uh, and acknowledge uh, the fact that they are deeply uh, patriotic and that their kids go into the military and the things that, that are important so that you essentially convey to them that you understand who they are. And then I think once you've showed up, once you've listened, once you've talked up and not down, then I think you need to talk about not programs and policies, but about partnerships, uh, recognizing that, that rural America is an important place and that you as a, a governor or a senator or a president or a member of Congress or whatever, that you're committed to creating opportunity uh, in those small towns. And, and you know, it's, it's about agriculture and exports. It's about that local and regional food system that can help create jobs. It's about conservation and encouraging people uh, outside of farming and ranching to invest and create market opportunities for, for conservation benefits. It's about bringing manufacturing back and, and using everything we grow and raise and figuring out how to make more plastics and more chemicals and more materials that are bio-based and not petroleum-based and, and balance off our, our fossil fuel-based economy so that it's more balanced. It creates opportunities in rural areas, creates jobs, creates new market opportunities for farmers. And I think if, if Democrats spoke in that way, uh, you know, they're not going to win every single one of those folks. They're not going to win every single one of those counties. But the key here is not to get beat 80-20 or 90-10, as has been the case in the past with some Democratic candidates who do very well in urban centers, do very well in, in, in some of the suburbs, but then get really smoked in those rural areas and, and they end up losing elections. Secretary Bill Sack, I want to thank you very much for taking time to be with us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and you get the last word. Well, Jeff, I just want to thank you and the listeners uh, again. Uh, I always appreciated the opportunity to visit with you when I was secretary and uh, one of the great jobs of all times. So I will tell you, uh, I uh, am very, very proud of the folks at USDA, and, and, I, and I know that Secretary Purdue is proud of them as well. So 
uh, hope to see you uh, uh, from time to time and hope to be able to visit with you from time to time. Our thanks to former USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack, President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. Our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally.